Hi, I'm Rebecca Lair. And I'm Amy Choi, and we are the Mashup Americans. We talk a lot about what it means to be an immigrant or the child of immigrants in this country. It's part of what we celebrate every day at Mashup HQ. Right, which is important to celebrate. Very important. And also, it's the perspective we know because... You know, it's ours. <laughs> and ours. Like, uh, hello. Uh, and like many good kids of immigrants, we really absorb that rah-rah America mentality with a, a, a healthy dose of questioning, but still. Right, and also, like, as good students of the American dream and of literature, we studied all the books that were, like, using my heavy air quotes, guys, defining America. Like Faulkner and O Pioneers. Oh, Lord help me. All I remember of that book is thinking... It seems so cold on the prairie. (laughs) And also, I know that you're obsessed with Little House on the Prairie. Honestly, it really helps me get through tough times to reread The Long Winter. (laughs) Like, if that family can make it through seven months of blizzards, totally isolated in the Dakotas, like eating what, I don't know, wheat ground up in a coffee maker and like munzled pieces of pork fat like I can make it through having to commute in slush and ordering seamless yeah <laughs> also Almanza Wilder was like a total babe now it's an adult it's also I acknowledge that it's gross that these books were basically written as like pioneering propaganda that was super anti-Native American. But, you know, history and much of literature is written by the victors, a.k.a. the oppressors. And those narratives are super effective marketing tools, so good on you old white dudes writing history because they're just (laughs) not true. Not true. So today we have a very special guest who is fighting against that narrative. She's also the first Native American guest we've had on Masha. My name is Sarah Eaglehart. My Lakota name is Wambli Shinawi, which means Eagle Shaw Woman. Uh, so I just want to open with a traditional greeting that we have in our language, which is Chante Washte Nape Chiyuzape, which means I greet you with a good heart. So I'm really, really happy to be here and really, really honored to be the first Native person on Mashup Americans. Sarah Eaglehart is an activist, a leader, and a badass. She's Ogallala Lakota, born on the Pine Ridge Indian Reservation in North Dakota, and her life goal is to help indigenous people fight for racial equity and inclusion. Sarah has been working most of her life to redefine the narrative around the Ogallala Lakota and native people all over the country, and we're so excited to have her with us. What I love about my community and my tribe is that we are so rich in culture. And so uh, for me, growing up in Pine Ridge was really about our value system, respect, humility, courage, fortitude, all of these things that was my value system growing up and coming from two parents that were both Ogallala Lakota and also being raised by my grandmother. And also, I'm a twin. I'm a Chekba. So I have an identical twin sister. Chekba is identical twin? It means twin. Yeah, it actually means mm. like belly button. Um, so I had, an <laughs> uncle. <laughs> I had an uncle one time that would he couldn't tell the difference. So he would just call us Chekba and expect us <laughs> to respond. So I started out as a teen activist. And I went to a border town high school. And so the high school was, uh, community was majority uh, white at that time. So um, that's why a lot of what I say was like two worlds. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. A border town between? Uh, reservation. So mm-hmm. <laughs> a border to the reservation. And mm-hmm. so 
I protested my high school because they had a warrior mascot and they um and with my twin sister and they had five That's just such an asshole move. I'm sorry. <laughs> to have a warrior ma- like come on guys. Yeah, so this whole homecoming ceremony consisted of five warrior princesses that dressed up no. like they were native oh, no. and then a big chief and a medicine man and the medicine oh, man no. danced around the five women and to choose one and he chose them by looking in their mouth and like manually weighing them <laughs> and then whoever he stood up all the way was the gift to the big chief so Wait, what kind of homecoming is this? also on a border town to a reservation <laughs> exactly exactly so my twin sister and i you know we were we knew that we had to do something and nobody told us like no one said right. actually my family was kind of like we don't know what you're doing girls but you know Wait, so okay. what did it feel like you and your sister to to be there and to see this well we were really fortunate that you know we came up with a community we had mentors and so we learned about our traditions and our culture you know when we were very young and so um so us <laughs> like watching this it was literally like one of us just like because i think we could communicate like psychically maybe but you know one of mm-hmm. us was like <sighs> and the other one was like i know and then that was, and that was just like our like our agreement. We're like, but in our we're like we have to do something. And that was we didn't even have to say it. Like we knew. And and then we embarked on this whole like crusade. But you you mentioned that your parents were were, were questioning you. Like why are you, are you really doing this? Or what was sort of? Can you unpack Gosh, that a little? Why yeah. do you think they didn't? support your sort of challenging this yeah I crazy mean, stereotypical thing so the funny thing is is that that little community was in the middle of two indian reservations so pine ridge indian reservation and rosebud indian reservation and so that little county would have been tribal land so that was tribal land that mm. was taken so my community was about a mile outside of town and so this community was very segregated. I don't know how else to say it. There was like native people and white people, and it felt very segregated. And the tribal community that I grew up in, that was all native people. And a lot of times like white people didn't go into that community, you know? So, um, you know, they thought something was going to happen to them if they went into our community. And I grew up with my grandmother. So I've had a, like just to, a very like traumatic childhood and my dad was never in my life and my mother had a car accident when we were seven Uh, she was a tribal cop and we were driving on new year's day like our whole family and we were run off the road by two drunk drivers and so my mom suffered a head injury that mentally left her a teenager so when she woke up from this car accident she couldn't remember having children and so, wow. Yeah, I mean, so how old you, were you at the time? We were seven. So we were wow. seven years old. So this is one of our first first memories. And mm. so we were raised by our grandma. And not there was several years where it was back and forth while people, you know, tried to figure out if our mom could take care of us or not. And she fell into mm-hmm. alcoholism and drugs and like you know bad relationships and and what have you. And then by the time you know we got to be like 14 I was like enough of this 
unstableness and craziness. Like I need to live with my grandma <laughs> and I'm staying mm-hmm. with my grandma. And so um, our grandmothers and aunties were working so hard just to survive and take care of us. So when you're in this little community, the racial dynamic and um, makeup, like they were worried for their jobs. They were worried right. that, you know, something was going to happen. That we were, And okay, we had racial profiling. I mean, mm-hmm. this still happens. It, th- th- so people were worried. And when we went through that process, I mean, we were um, threatened with violence. And many of our kids, the kids that we were friends with since kindergarten, because we basically went to that school our whole lives and we were, we were accepted. You know, we did everything. We played the clarinet. You know, we um, we were in choir. Oh, the clarinet. Yeah. Did you start with the recorder? <laughs> oh, yeah. Probably, you yeah. Didn't... <laughs> yeah, we... you definitely did. <laughs> Come on. Yeah. Little I... Frere Jaca oh, my on gosh. the recorder. <laughs> yeah, and my sister and I were so competitive, too. So, I mean, she was, like, the second chair. Yeah, we were. I was third chair, but I like to give her, like, a hard time, like, I was going to, like... <laughs> <laughs> so, in, in, with all of this, I mean, of course, like, you can completely understand why your extended family would be so concerned that suddenly their two precious gifts, the twins, are now going to, like, make a commotion at white people's school. Yeah. <laughs> so, so, how do you, how do you, how do you go about activism? How do you start when you're when you're facing that and in that environment. Oh my gosh. Well, it's so funny because I was always a planner. So when I was 16, I wanted to be a journalist. And so I was like, I'm going to be a journalist and went to like all the summer camps and stuff. And um, again, I was connected to some mentors that were trying to help us. So I knew about the radio. I knew about newspapers. I knew about the power of them. And so my sister and I were like, okay, we're just going to start telling people because we don't think people know. <laughs> and because we were just like, if they knew, they would be outraged. And it, funny enough, like that's basically what came out. Like our the tribal communities didn't know really what was happening because it was so segregated. And many Native people in the community were so desensitized because they just didn't want to start a fight or start, you know, rock the boat. And so we actually had a lot of other communities come to our aid, um, including like the American Indian Movement and um, like Lakota Student Alliance and people that came and wanted to help us. So we held educational forums. We marched down the street. You know, we did a whole like circle with the drum around the auditorium and disrupted their their pageant. <laughs> oh fuck yeah! Is all I'm saying. I just imagine baby Sarah and Emma. Yeah. Just making it happen. There's also there's something here too about the power of young women. I think, you know, we're seeing this in the current political environment, too, where people are like so surprised that Teen Vogue is writing smart articles. Well, why? Yeah, why are you, why so, are you surprised? so surprised that young women can be smart and active? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So how did it all turn out? Well, they ended the ceremony. It took four years. And they thought that four we were, years. Yeah, they thought we were going to go to college. It, we, it was 57 years old thing that they were doing they thought we were going to go to college and like never come back but we just kept coming back every year (laughs) and we were like we're just gonna keep doing this and they finally ended four years yeah yeah 
That's so. amazing. Congratulations. I'm really glad I that no other I think what the thing you say here is she persisted. She <laughs> Right? To quote right. the great Mitch McConnell, <laughs> right. she persisted. But I have um, to say like having a having a sister in in the fight made all the difference cuz I don't want to I did not do that on my own. Having a community come together and support you, that's part of all of the reason why I, I do my work is because we have to normalize these issues. And a lot of times mm-hmm. people just don't know. We want people to understand our history so that every time I talk about an issue, I don't have to have a really brief, like 45 minute conversation about Indian 101 and like go through 500 years of issues before I even get to talk about my issue. Mm-hmm. And our history, you know. And just, it's not in school books. It's not in school books on purpose because the conqueror wrote the school book and kept Mm -hmm. our accurate history out. That's why being on like Mashup Americans today, it's great because, you know, we get to have more allies in the fight that understand our history, understand our issues. And when they're at a table that doesn't include Native Americans, you guys say, hey, where are our indigenous like brothers and sisters? We, they need to be here too. We're building an even better podcast in the coming months, and we'd like your help. Tell us what you like, what you don't like, and what you wish we could do in the future, and a little bit about how you mash up. Go to mashupamericans.com slash survey today. Now, back to the show. Does your tribe have a dialect of Lakota language? Right. So there's like L, D, and N. So we're mm. like Lakota. So we're the L dialect. Um, and then so we say things like Palamia, which is thank you. And other tribes uh, look, would say like the Nakota tribe would, you know, or Dakota would be like Padamia. So we have a little bit of different dialects. And then the other one is Panamia. Yeah. Do you speak your dialect fluently? So I'm not fluent for a lot of reasons, and mainly because of the Indian boarding school era, which oftentimes I find that most mainstream Americans just don't know about that at all. I mean, we just Wait. were like, what is the Indian boarding school? Okay. <laughs> yeah. Okay. We, you're not inter- interlude. Please <laughs> explain the inter- Indian boarding school era, Sarah. So, yeah. So, so um, manifest destiny, mm. the whole inherent right to conquer and rule a people. That's what happened with America, how everyone came over to the U.S. and then colonized. So mm-hmm. part of that colonization was over 500 Indian boarding schools between the between the late 1850s and the uh, like mid 1900s, actually. And these schools were either government run or church ran. So various denominations were a part of these school systems that took children from their families and their communities. So as young as I've, I've seen as young as babies that were taken from these school systems, um, yeah, from their families. So taken, the families weren't volunteering to send their kids no, away no, no, for no, education. No, they, no, it was mm-hmm. forced. So this was during mm-hmm. a time period when um, the slogan under the government was kill the Indian, save the man. That was literally like the slogan mm-hmm. of these schools, <laughs> and um, mm-hmm. so these Sorry, children. Sorry, I didn't mean it's. Uh, it's so shocking. I know. It's so absurd. It's so absurd. That it's, yeah. Yes, mm-hmm. this was all the propaganda during that time. I mean, the native people were evil. You know that our men were raping. You know, white women. You know, so all of this stuff. You know that the 
And then you have these children that were taken from their families. So this would have been like my grandma's generation. This was mm. my mom's generation. So when people think of Indian boarding schools and like the forced colonization of, of people, like you're talking about my grandma. And so, and um, was was your grandmother? Um, was she actually sent to one of the boarding schools? She, was she taken? Yeah, taken, she was. Course, yeah. yeah, and my. And, Thank you for the correction. <laughs> yeah, was she taken? She was. Yeah, they were taken. And the thing was, was that you were threatened. The families were threatened with no food. So when you're living in a community that is stricken by poverty, and you're told that you're not going to get food if you don't send your child, or you're going to go to jail. So those were the kind of the options. And so all these kids that went to these these schools, it was a very military run school. And so when I talk to people about, you know, what happened, I, I say, well, we weren't some of the basic things that was crucial to our community was like love and our value system. So this totally disrupted our way of life. It disrupted how we taught each other, how we work together. And then the children at these schools, you know, there's reports of them being beaten and uh, raped and children that never came home and they never knew what happened to them. And like mass graves and like and places like, you know, Pennsylvania. And so it's just it's such a sad, sad history that we haven't recovered from. And when you think about a people that haven't had something basic as learning love and, and those kids go home to their reservation and to their communities and they don't know how to express love. That's hard. And then at the same time, they were taught your language is evil. The way who you are is evil. So then you get to language where, you know, my grandmother and, you know, my mother, like they didn't teach us the language because they wanted us to have a better life. Right. And they wanted us to be able to be in this world and communicate and like assimilate because it would be a better life. And then at the same time, you know, my generation and our younger generation, like we've come around to like the understanding of how we're going to survive and heal as a people is through our language and through our culture. We essentially need that for our, our identity and for our own like peace in, in our hearts and souls. So, um, so yeah, that's Indian boarding schools. Oh my God. Sarah, do you feel American? I do. You know, there's, um, you know, when I travel the world and, and have been so, so blessed to visit um, other indigenous communities and, you know, have been to places like Rome or Paris or wherever, I feel American. But at the same time, like I have to say, like there's a little bit of pain with that. I mean, like we still haven't, recovered from the Indian boarding school era. And when we talk about how America came to be and how wealth was accumulated in America and to be a, an American, you know, what that has meant to our people, it's, it's sad, you know? And so I, I, I say that with a little bit of like, you know, I had to do some deep thinking when I, when I thought about that because, um, because there is pain associated with it. But at the same time, you know, I, you know, I am an American. I love pop culture. You know, I, you know. Yeah, so what does a being American mean to you? For me, I mean, there. for me, it's always been sort of a toggling of two worlds. And I, I think that 
over the years, just my experience of being able to work with so many different communities and with um, so, so many different people. Um, at the Episcopal Church, I was a team leader for uh, diversity, social justice, environmental justice. And so the church, you know, being in 16 countries with 2 million people, I really got to work with amazing people working on reconciliation and healing. And working with diverse communities really helped me to see the intersections between so many of our issues um, mm-hmm. and also to see um, the parallels of our issues, but also mm-hmm. to say, like, hey, guys, we're always left out. Does any of this make you angry? And what does anger look like for you? Which part? <laughs> I um, mean, yeah. <laughs> I mean, like I so in hearing what you're saying, for example, I'm I'm like I live since for a long time in a kind of constant state of anger. But <laughs> as one of as our friend uh, Phil Yu says, he's the angry Asian man that like stay angry. It, yeah. it keeps you strong. Right. I can only imagine a sense of being consumed by the anger or the injustice. Does that threaten you ever? Do you ever feel that? You know, I am such in a place of healing and our community is such in a place of healing that for me in working for the different communities that I've worked from, I have just seen so much pain, not only in our community, but in the non-native community. So Mm -hmm. when I go to talk to people and share with them about manifest destiny or, you know, kill the Indian, save the man, I've literally had non-Native people cry because they just learned that their ancestors were involved with that. So for me, it's really such a, a place of healing, not just for our communities, but for other communities. So it's hard for me to be too angry about that because I, I feel like um, there's so much work that has to be done that I've been in different spaces where I've seen some a lot of times men who will come and they'll grandstand and, and they'll be like, they kind of blow it up, right? They'll, they'll go in there and they talk about, oh, this is so horrible that they happened, this happened to our people and you did this and you did that and this is horrible. And I immediately get annoyed because they mm. don't have a solution. You know, mm. they're, they're just grandstanding and like making a point for their, you know, their male ego. And I get it. They're, they're educating too. I get that too. But... I'm more so the issues that are affecting our community are so dire. I mean, we have a we have a teen suicide epidemic right now, mm-hmm. not an, across the U.S. on many different reservations. And it doesn't matter if it's a wealthy casino reservation or if it's a poor tribal rural like reservation. We all have this teen suicide epidemic. So when we're talking about the issues and me out there educating people, by me educating people and by bringing resources to our communities or investment, that's literally saving lives. Amen. <laughs> How is it helpful for you to have people who are new to political action or new to learning about the Native American experience? How is it helpful to have us interact with your community? Are there examples of where it has gone particularly well? Yeah, I mean, I think that just being there, right? One of the things that we talk about a lot is that um, you have to actually physically go into a tribal community and spend some time. And 
that's something that I don't think a lot of people prioritize or spend time doing. You think that you can learn it from a book or, a, you know, a TV show or what have you. Um, but actually understanding that worldview is entering into a community and being surrounded by a worldview that is not your own and a culture and a, and a way of life. And so being in that community, and this is why Standing Rock was such an incredible experience for so many people, because they entered into this community of prayer where you had so many different allies that were coming together, but they were also being taught. So if you were at Standing Rock, you would have heard at this camp where they were literally storytelling like 24-7 because they wanted to educate. So the thing is, is that they weren't just educating non-Native people. They were also educating our own people because you have to remember, like, we've gone through this system where our culture and language and stories were bad. So there are many people that weren't as lucky as I was to know these stories, you know, from my youth. So that storytelling aspect of learning was really important and spending time with the community. So there have been a lot of great allies that came together and did that. I also feel like saying you don't know is okay. That's okay to say you don't, that you know don't know what you don't know. That's right. our that's our motto. You don't know what you don't know. <laughs> did did exactly. Standing Rock did Standing Rock mark a turning point in visibility for Native issues or in um, Native American activism? I would say that we have been activists for a long time. I mean, even before me, you know, there was Wounded Knee. So Standing mm-hmm. Rock was a point where I feel like just many people of this current generation were awakened and Mm -hmm. they were able to learn because of social media. You had people there that had their live feeds going 24-7 and you could learn about the issues happening right now. It was easy for people to engage. You could literally like check into the reservation to show that you um, supported the issues. And I think that that was something that people were being educated on another level that they never were before. I do think that um, in storytelling and in the media, there is maybe the deeper dive that needs to happen. One of the questions I've gotten to was like, well, do you think you've been represented in, in the media accurately? I would say like on the news, obviously, there were stories that were told, there were stories that weren't told. And like the more like sensationalistic, you know, stories were like on the news. But was the story, you know, about the 500, you know, clergy that came to the reservation and burned the doctrine of discovery? I don't know that that mm. was really covered, but no, well, that I happened. Didn't yeah. And mm-hmm. yeah, it was all my former colleagues. And I was just so proud of them it it was it was episcopalian clergy it really was it was this whole like interfaith community that um the episcopalian priest there uh called i'm really down with episcopalian it's a weird thing to say but it's so true it's like if we're gonna be christian she'd be don't get me started it gets all the awesome things about catholicism without the bad things you know exactly yeah exactly. i mean i'm i apologize for kind of uh diluting all of catholicism and episcopalianism to that but that's how i feel exactly so, 
I mean, that that sounds incredible. And to have that interfaith ceremony there in such a dramatic and beautiful way. You know, so what's next? What happens with every all of the energy that was created there and all of the education? Well, it's gone to local communities. So, I mean, everybody has, you know, they've moved to their communities to be able to advocate on whatever issue. The, the truth of the matter is, there's a sacred site issue in whatever community you're in in America. I promise you. There's a local mm-hmm. tribe that's that's dealing with a water issue. They're dealing with Standing Rock. A lot of what, what made people mad was that sacred sites were being destroyed. So they're, like, plowing through ancestral, like, altars. Um, and so we're like, you know, if it were any other, you know, religious group, like, that would never happen. But for some reason, like Native people, it's okay to like plow through our altars. For us, like there's just, there's all these issues that are happening like Oak Flat, where in Arizona, they're trying to build a highway through um, like this tribal land that uh, with Gila River, it has not only is tribal land, there's sacred sites, there's, you know, this, all of their education and learning systems. And it's going through their community. So if you're on social media and you see Native people, like, holding their arm, like, flat, that's actually to, like, signify oak flat. And I had to ask about that because I was like, did I miss a signal somewhere? Like, what does that mean? <laughs> I Why is everyone sign. doing that? Yeah. You're, yeah. like, texting your cousin being, I like, was. I was like, hey, guys, I feel, like, really old, but why is all the young people, like, <laughs> holding their arm up? Mashup American see things a little differently than everybody else. So every week, we serve up a curated list of the most interesting stories from around the world. Subscribe to our newsletter at mashupamericans.com newsletter for a mashup take on global events. It'll make you think, laugh, and have your thoughts provoked. You will be delighted. So do it. mashupamericans.com newsletter. So just to wrap up our conversation, we ask everybody a speed round of questions, which is a fun, shouldn't take too much thinking um, kind of exercise in what we think are important ways to talk about your mashup and your mashup. Also, just let's have some fun because we had some real conversation in here today. I know. This is serious. Thank you, guys. I appreciate it. I always feel like Debbie Downer. I have to come in with like... (laughs) You're like, let me tell you about the boarding schools. Let me tell you about how everything you've ever learned is complete (laughs) bullshit and you murdered a lot. Uh, Yeah, no, I'm just... I really want to go home and like look up all of my favorite spots in Brooklyn and be like, fuck, that's an altar. Yeah, but also the other thing is like manifest destiny. As a person who was like focused on English class, like English classes, and was an English major, how I mean that was. I think I took several classes, maybe called that, which were about (laughs) defining like, oh, this is a defining piece of what it means to be American, and then realizing how it's the violence of that. I'm actually just realizing that in this conversation, there's a lot going on that we later we're going to unpack. So with that, here's the mashup speed round. Sarah Eagleheart, how do you mash up? I I feel like it's so simple. I'm Ogallala Lakota. That's right. What did you call your grandmother? Unchi, which means uh, grandmother or gram. But I like how my sons call my grandma. They call her OG for old grandma. 
what what languages do you speak? Lakota and Spanish. So a little bit of both. What's your Starbucks name? Rara. So <laughs> that it my twin and I could not say each other's names when we were little. So she called me Rara and I called her Riri. <laughs> oh my god, that's just... <laughs> so she ba- she's like, oh, I can't believe bad girl Riri took my Insta handle. Also, what's hilarious is that like nine other people, when we've asked them this question, that have really complicated names somehow for American listeners or like American ears, they're all like Sarah. <laughs> yeah, Sarah. Like we just talked to an Irish uh, immigrant to the U.S. and her name is Maeve, and she was like, "What?" We asked her what her Starbucks name is, and she said Sarah. So it's really great that Sarah is something else. Um, what is your comfort food? Matcha lattes. I oh. love matcha lattes. I know. That's, I that's very bougie of you. Sarah. Yeah, I know, right? Major <laughs> bougie. Talk about the food that my grandmother never like had. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What did you eat growing up? Everything. So, I mean, we our our foods are stuff like, you know, buffalo or like traditional soups with like hominy or corn, celery. We had even this soup that's made of intestines. And and that's Mm -hmm. one of our traditional soups It's called taniga. And so that I that, love I love intestines. Yeah, too. it's really really good. Mm-hmm. And the so, texture, I just love it. It's yummy. <laughs> it's really really yummy. And I yeah. So, and I learned how to clean it when I was young. Like we we butchered buffaloes for different meals, and so I learned how to like to do all that stuff. So it's a lot extra of, skill. That's a lot of animal. Yeah. Also, <laughs> where do you feel most at home? So Pine Ridge Indian Reservation is always going to be my home and that's where I have made sure to take my sons home every summer to spend you know they've gone through their traditional ceremonies there as well and I want them to know where home is so home is you know Pine Ridge how far do you live from there now right now I mean I live about eight hours so it's about an eight hour drive from Minneapolis what do you spend money on that your grandmother never would I mean, I thought about I that know. question a lot. Matcha lot. It's like matcha everything. Matcha lattes. I, mean, it's like, I was like, well, she, I don't know if she would have bought these, like, shoes or, you know, like, organic food, you know, because my grandma, like, she was literally in the country with her garden, and she had her, her organic food there, right? So she would have never gone out to right. buy it. But, you know, on the reservation, it is such a food desert. So you really, really have to know how to you know, have a garden and many communities don't. So yeah, so I, I feel like when I'm spending extra money to be healthy, a lot of times I think about how many people in our community, including like my tribe and my brothers or my cousins and aunties and, you know, that don't always have access to like gluten-free food because everything is fried or from McDonald's or something like that, because mm-hmm. that's, that's like the fast food place that's on the res, right? obviously led to a lot of health issues. So we have high rates of diabetes and heart disease and and things like that, too. So, yeah, I feel totally bougie when I talk about the food. (laughs) I'm I'm also like, but I want to be healthy and I want to live. (laughs) This is a bougie safe space. Total bougie safe space. Soon you're going to tell us that you go to the Soul Cycle, and then we're going to really have to have a conversation. Yeah. But um, so... What do you feel guilty about? We traffic a lot in guilt in our conversations, guilt about language, guilt about being our 
the different kinds of privileges that we have, guilt about what our kids are going to get from our culture that we are carrying or not carrying with us. What do you feel guilty about? I had some really a conversation with like a few of my friends, uh, several Native women that are professionals, you know, in their careers, and they kind of talk about just the struggle that they have because. On one end, you know, they want to have a good life. They want to, you know, go to Napa and enjoy, you know, a good bottle of wine. But at the same time, feel guilty because so many of our communities are in poverty, right? And and so it's like this constant conundrum of all these issues that we have to face in order to be like a contemporary woman in like this day and age where we want to be able to be successful and enjoy, you know, the fruits of being successful, but also be able, you know, to go back to our community and go to a traditional ceremony, which I do. So, um, mm -hmm. But it's a constant kind of guilt about not living on the reservation because everybody's on the reservation. So, yeah, it's there's there's so much to feel guilty for. I could go on and on. <laughs> well, we welcome you. Open arms, open hearts. The bougie guilt club. We That's feel us. guilty about everything. Um, so our last question for you, Sarah, is what is your bubamaisa? A white owl means death. Oh, oh God. God. Yeah, no risks there. <laughs> Wait, so what do you do if you see one? Do you run away? You, I, I would like hide my eyes. Like I just want to. I don't want to see it. <laughs> I mean, because totally it, it means like somebody's gonna die is what it means. So, <laughs> and <laughs> yeah, so it's probably not true. But you know what? I've had a lot of people that have seen an owl and then like three people died later. So, <laughs> so stop it. I can't. I just get goosebumps all over my body. I'm glad that it wasn't like. Oh, see a skunk, because then I'd be like, uh-oh, <laughs> in Los Angeles, I'm seeing a lot of skunks de these days, and this could be a bad omen. But when you mention an owl, it's less likely. Right. Um, <laughs> Especially like a white one. So, <laughs> Palamia? Is that? Palamia? How do we pronounce it? Palamia. How do we say thank you? Look at you guys. Palamia. Palamia. <laughs> Thank you, Sarah. This was an incredible conversation. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. And then we say, we say doksha, which means later. <laughs> later. later. Doksha. <laughs> We really could have listened to her forever. Uh, matcha lattes on us next time, Sarah. We love a bougie latte. <laughs> Sarah Eagleheart can be found at Miss underscore Eagleheart on Twitter and Insta. You should definitely follow her and the hashtags Indigenous Women Rise and Sacred X. We'll also have more on Sarah and some suggestions on who in the Native community to follow and know and tidbits from the episode on our site at mashupamericans.com. Get to know yourself, America. The Mashup Americans are me, Amy Choi. And me, Rebecca Lair. Our producer today was Jacob Margolis. Our show is produced by American Public Media and Southern California Public Radio, KPCC. We're also supported in part by an award from the National Endowment for the Arts on the web at arts.gov. Ciao. Bye. <laughs>